We used to work with kids, and at one point I had a barn in the middle of a field. That was our youth center. And I remember drawing up to the barn in the car and getting out, and it was the middle of summer, which means nothing in England. We have two seasons, winter and the second week of August. (laughs) And it was raining the second week of August, so we were really in trouble that year. But I do remember it was the middle of August, and to my amazement, as I got out of the car, I heard Christmas carols. And I thought, what is this? Now, it was full, this barn was full of young people who had been just street kids and had found the Lord Jesus and their lives had been changed. And we were working with these young people. We'd brought them all into this place. So I get in there and they're just having a grand old time singing Christmas carols. And I said to one of them, why Christmas carols? And they said, well, we've only just been Christians a short time. We haven't had time to learn any hymns or songs. And we all know a few Christmas carols, and so we thought we'd just sing those. And then one of the boys said, but you know, it's such an incredible thing that God became a baby. Such an incredible thing. Why do we have to wait till Christmas to sing about it? But I have felt very, very much laid upon my heart to bring you a little word from the Bible about Christmas. And I want to just simply call it what I call that poem, Meet Him at the Manger. Let me read you a little piece of my journal from when I was in Portugal, in Europe. I was in Europe. A luncheon had been arranged in a country club. Three men had paid for 200 women to have lunch and listen to a speaker. The speaker was me. As far as the three men could tell, most of the women were not believers in Jesus Christ. We had refreshments on the terrace, and I looked around and felt decidedly nervous. Leaving the chatter in a myriad of European languages, though most spoke English, I went inside to my table, got my Bible out, and looked at the passage of Scripture I planned to use. I was so absorbed, I didn't see her come in. I feel drawn to you. I think you can help me, she said, softly. Then awkwardly, I don't really know what I mean. I I don't do this sort of thing. And I looked up to find an English girl, young and very beautiful, who had followed me inside from the terrace. And she sat down at the table by my feet and waited expectantly. Tell me about yourself, I said. She looked a little startled. English women aren't used to being asked to do that. What's your story? I encouraged her. Tell me about your spiritual journey. Well, I've come to a place where I know there's something more, she said. I've always somehow had this sense of belonging somewhere else, wherever I am. Something, something I'm missing. Well, there was a writer called C.S. Lewis, I told her. He wrote, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. The probable explanation is, I was made for another world. Her eyes flickered with some sort of inward recognition. I think you might be searching for God, I said. Do you have a religious philosophy? Not one, she said somewhat disapprovingly. You can't have just one. Who's wise enough to say one is Worth more than another. Oh, warming to the conversation, I have lots of beliefs, bits and pieces blended together, but not just one. Victoria was typical of Europe's postmodern worshippers and searchers after truth who openly acknowledge the confusion inside, the heart hunger that won't quit, the lifestyle that won't satisfy, the yearning too deep for words but too insistent to be ignored. Well, I said... 
until you find the one true God, you'll always feel there's a hole in your heart. Then before she could say anything else, I asked her, now which of all the philosophical and religious beliefs that you hold have helped you the most? Well, astrology, she said. You know, I said there were some incredibly brilliant astrologers 2,000 years ago who at a great cost to themselves took a long journey, ended up at Bethlehem, knelt down and worshipped a baby boy. I looked at Victoria and said, Victoria, you have to decide who that baby was. These astrologers knelt and acknowledged, worshipped a God they were not familiar with. And that's what astrology has to do in every other religion in the world. For the Christian believes the baby in the manger was God himself. Well, it was a miracle. The people stayed outside that dining room until the clock told them we were half an hour late to start. I had all the time I needed to say what I wanted to that girl, that God took me halfway around the world to tell about Christmas. I looked at her, loved her, and I said, you have to meet him at the manger. Do you think there's hope for me? She asked me quietly, getting to her feet as the women streamed into the dining room. Oh yes, I said. I believe you're going to find out what you've been looking for all your life. But Victoria, the word of God says you're going to find him if you search for him with all your heart. You have to make this a priority. I knew she would. Now all of us have to meet him at the manger. Every person ever born has to meet him at the manger. And we have to decide who the baby is. Is he just the founder of one more religion in the world? Just another Jewish child? Or is he the north in the compass of our searching hearts? Who is he? Well, Christians believe incredible concept that God walked down the stairway of heaven with a baby in his arms, put him in a bale of hay, and set the world on fire. It's the only religion in the world that claims the founder of their religion is God Almighty. The only religion in the world. All the other religions have a dead prophet or a dead founder. Now, if that's true, every other religion in the world has to make its journey towards that manger and decide who they believe that baby is. And I believe they have to give him the treasures of the knowledge they already have. That's what the astrologers did. They had beliefs that were absolutely interwoven in their lives. They believed with all their hearts they were the religious leaders, the magi, the ones who read the stars, as perhaps no one has ever read them since, the wise men from the East. And they gave up those long-held religious beliefs. And Christmas is for giving up. Christmas is all about giving up. And I believe that we have to sometimes come, some of us, and give up long-time-held religious beliefs. What had Jesus given up to come to Bethlehem? Everything. Heaven, his father's house, the sea of glass, the angels, 
the river of life, flowers that never fade, and the brush of a million angels' wings. He gave up the trappings of his deity. If you read Philippians 2, it says that he left behind his glory. That's the trappings of his deity. He didn't leave behind his deity. He left the glory. He left the honor. He left those things that were the outward manifestation of who he was. And he came. Though he was rich, Yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. Well, if you want to know how poor us, Mary and the shepherds and the wise men. Actually, they expected him to be born in the palace. That's why they went to Herod's palace first. They had no idea. The king that the stars had told them in the shape of the constellations that they had never seen before and had never been recorded, that a king had been born. That's why they took the journey. A king had been born. They knew it before they set out because they read the stars and the stars were acting in the most extraordinary fashion. And apparently in other history books we are told that constellations were moving around the heavens in a way that they'd never moved around the heavens before. And they read into that the sign that a king had been born. And they set off to find out what it was all about. Now, they had a lot of truth already, but they had some erroneous beliefs. Let me talk about some of the beliefs that we have in our world today, in America today. Even some Christians or people that believe or would call themselves or claim that they're Christians have today. The first one is, I can be good enough to get to heaven on my own merits. That's an erroneous biblical belief. That is not biblical. People take it from the Bible, from different verses, but it is not true. You cannot get to heaven on your own merits. I think that's One of those things that we believe probably more than anything else. If I do this and I do that and I go here and I do this religious thing and I'm good enough, then I will get to heaven. We think we can be good enough on our own. We have a visitor's coffee where we serve visitors with coffee. I was up there because that's where I usually go to greet new people. And this very distinguished young man came, well, older man came in with his wife, and I introduced myself, and he said, we've come to meet our pastor. And I said, oh, who's your pastor? He said, Stuart is. And I thought that they were just part of our large congregation, and they were saying with their tongue-in-cheek, we've come to meet our pastor. And I said, well, how long have you been at Elmbrook? And they said, oh, just today, we're just visiting to meet our pastor. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, he's been our pastor for four years. And I said, really? Where do you live? He said, Mexico. I said, oh, (laughs) tell me about it. He said, well, four years ago, a doctor came to Milwaukee to do some work and stayed for about three months. And somebody told him he should come to your church. So he started coming, sitting in the back row. And then he finished his work, and he was just about to retire, so he bought a condominium where we live in Mexico, right on the cliffs in the most incredibly gorgeous place. And we all settled in together. There's 300 of us live in this fabulous retirement community in Mexico. 
And he said, we're Lutherans. We've been Lutherans all our life. We have a home in Minnesota, and we have this place in Mexico, and we go back and forth. But he said, we became very disturbed that there was no church for these 300 people because we're not in a town or a place, and so there's nowhere to go. There's two Mexican churches, but they're in their own language. We don't understand. And so there isn't anything. And, and, and so I said to this doctor who became a friend of ours, I, I wish we could do something about getting a church for us, just somewhere to go on Sunday. We're used to going to church on Sunday, and there's nowhere to go. And this doctor said... Well, you know, I went to a church in Milwaukee for a short time, and the pastor there has videos. Why don't we call and see if we could get some videos? And so they called the man on the videos, and J.J. said, sure, what do you want? And so he said, well, just what have you got? And so he began to send, we never knew about this, send videos down to this wonderful retirement community. They have one room that everything happens in. It's the restaurant it's the bar, it's the meeting place, they have reunions there, they have a band come in, they have entertainment there. And so they turned it into, as they put it, a bar church. <laughs> and so they borrowed a normal-sized TV, put it on the bar, and Stuart had been preaching there for four years. <laughs> Unbeknownst to everyone. So here they are, three years into this event, and he said, so we've come to meet our pastor. He's, he's got this huge congregation of 300 of us down there, and nearly everybody comes. We've had to go to two bar services. <laughs> <laughs> and so he said, would you and your husband come and visit your congregation? And so I introduced Stuart, and long story short, we said, yes, we'd love to. And so we went. We went. It was three days of the most exciting events of my life. It was quite incredible. We got there and they got this reception and we, I felt like the Queen of England. <laughs> it was just amazing. And then every meal time they got 30 or 40 people in the restaurant and we met 30 or 40 people and answered questions. There was no ifs, ands, and buts. They came right out. How do you know the Bible's true? I mean, we just sat down and they were just peppering us with religious questions, if you wish, about God and faith and Bible and mission and everything. And then on Sunday, I'll never forget it, they had their first real church service because it was always just plonk the TV down, put the video in, take the collection, what for, don't ask me, and then they went home. <laughs> but now they were going to have a service. And so they had practiced Ed. They had a choir you would not believe. Now, the songs were very interesting. I would say there were songs. I won't even tell you the sort of songs. <laughs> but they were sort of religious. They had a sort of little religious edge. <laughs> then there was a very sweet lady, very, very sweet lady, who sang a solo. And they did a marvelous job. I just thought it was quite incredible. One of them read the Bible, and, you know, they did everything they felt that they should do in church. And then Stuart got to speak live. It was All I could hear was, oh, he, he's live, he's live. <laughs> yes, he's live. So, one afternoon, they divided the men and the women. Stuart went up onto the hilltop into this beautiful home, and he met with all but a big group of men, and I met with the women. And this was to be a question-answer time. So we're all in this... I get the bar, so we're in the bar because it's full of these women. 
I sort of started gently. I said, now, you can ask me anything you like. Do you want to ask me about other parts in the world and what's happening? And what do you want to ask me about? Raising children? And this woman said, no, 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 we don't want to bother with that. She said, I've got a question. How good do I have to be to get to heaven? My first question. How good do I have to be to get to heaven? I said, perfect. There was dead silence. (laughs) Then she said, then who can go? It was a great afternoon. (laughs) Who can go? That's a good question. If you have to be perfect to get to heaven, and the Bible says you do, because God looks down and says, well, you made a mess of my earth, you're not going to make a mess of my heaven. Something has to happen to your sin before I let you in my heaven. You have to be like Jesus. Jesus was perfect. Anybody like Jesus can come to heaven. That's the standard. The standard is perfection. The standard is Jesus. And all have sinned and come short of that standard. So you have to be perfect to go to heaven. Well, you can't be perfect. So nobody can go to heaven. Well, unless somebody forgives you. Unless you accept Christ and God sees Christ in you and accepts you because he sees Christ and accepts you in the beloved. You have to be perfect in the sense of being forgiven. There are only sinners in heaven, but they're all forgiven sinners. And God says, if you accept my forgiveness, I will begin your sanctification, your making perfect. And that won't end till you get to heaven and see him face to face. But only God can make us fit for heaven. We cannot make ourselves perfect or good enough for heaven. You have to come to the manger and you have to give it up. have to give it up. Like the astrologers did. So some people think they have to be too good and others think, I'm too bad. Another of those ladies that day said, well, I'll never get to heaven. I don't expect to. I'm too bad. Well, the Bible says, from the guttermost to the uttermost, if you wish, Paul called himself the chief of sinners We're all sinners. Some have sinned more than others. We're all too bad to get to heaven. Only forgiven people can go to heaven. I remember taking a friend of mine to hear Dr. John Stott. She was not a believer. She was a very good friend. I'd grown up with her. First time she'd ever been in church. I took her to a very famous preacher called Dr. John Stott. And at the door, I introduced my friend to him, hoping he would say something sweet and nice and make her want to come back again. And he looked her right in the eye and he said, you will either sleep tonight a forgiven sinner or an unforgiven one. Good night. <laughs> it did the trick. She called me the next day. She said, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep because I knew I was unforgiven. She came to Christ. So... Nobody is too bad. And none of us can be good enough. But another thing we have to leave at the manger is this belief that it's too narrow. Have you ever had anyone say that to you? This Christianity, it's too narrow. Like Victoria said to me, who are you to say that your religion is better than my religion? Who are you to say one truth is bigger than the other truths? Who are you to say this? Well, you have to ask the baby in the manger that question because he grew up and he said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one gets to the Father and no one gets to heaven except by me. 
Now, if you look in the manger and decide that baby is God, you have no alternative but to accept that. There is one way to heaven. If, on the other hand, you say, no, he was a good man, then you can hold as many beliefs as you like. It all comes back to who is the baby in the major. I'm too bad, I'm too good, it's too narrow. And we have to decide if the truth is the truth and the Bible is true. Another thing we have to let go is it's too late. I've believed like this all my life. It's too late to change. I heard that George Barner had done a survey of people changing their beliefs. He said that if you don't change by the age of 12... You're not going to change. That was his research. Heard that this week. If you do not change, if you've been brought up in church, if you've been brought up in Sunday school, if you've been brought up with some sort of religious philosophy and you haven't changed, it's very, very difficult to change after that. And so look at us all. Look at me. Gray hair here. And often people say, well, the older you get, the harder. I mean, I've believed this all my life. I can't start again. I can't. I can't admit to myself that I might hold some beliefs that haven't been true, that I've been even in church all my life, and I've believed something that's not true. Very hard to do that the older you get. But it's never too late to believe in something new. And you know, old people do it all the time. Every time something comes out on television, a new vitamin, we all believe it, and we all try it, in case it works. And we're willing to become believers. I can't remember. I think it was when I first came here. Everybody was going crazy about turtle oil for the skin. Do you remember that? Who wants to look like a turtle? I never understood that. (laughs) But anyway, turtle oil was the idea. We have a, a wonderful lady in our seniors ministry. She gave testimony and was baptized when she was 99 years of age here in church. And she came to Christ at the age of 98. And she's running around all the old people's homes at the moment in her wheelchair telling people it's never too late to change your mind. So, I'm too busy with more important things. This is way down on my priority list. What are you giving up for Christmas? He gave everything up. Maybe the hardest thing for us would to be give up the idea that we've been right all our life about the way to go to heaven and how to get there. Number two, Christmas is for giving in. Giving in to evidence that demands a verdict, and I realize that I have no time to develop this. Who is that baby? Now then, one little thing. To me, as a student at Cambridge, wrestling through all of this that I've just been telling you about, using all the negative arguments against the person that was trying to lead me to Christ, I remember the thing that turned my mind around was when she got onto prophecy. She said, Jill, prophecy is history written in advance. Anybody can write history looking back. But prophecy... Somebody before the event saying what will happen in detail is history written in advance. And here in my Bible, I just typed out, it's been a wonderful Bible study, I typed out just 38 predictions about Jesus, birth, life, death, and resurrection. 38 only. There are many, 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 many more. Now that's impressive. 
I remember saying, well, he could have arranged to figure that out. He knew what the prophecies are. He knew that he should come in as the kingly king on a donkey. So he arranged to do that. And I remember Jenny, who was dealing with me, just taking me to pieces on that one. She said, how did he arrange to descend from the tribe of Judah? How did he manage to be heir to the throne of David? How did he manage to be born in Bethlehem? That was hard. He didn't belong there. So how did he arrange for the Roman guy to make sure that everybody had to go to their own hometown just when Jesus' mother was nine months pregnant and about to have a baby? How did he manage to do that? So he'd hoodwink everyone. And what about the time of his birth? And what about the massacre of the infants, which was spoken about in Jeremiah, that came true because Herod tried to kill everybody and did? And what about the flight into Egypt? Because Hosea says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew says, so he got up, Joseph, took the child and his mother, and went into Egypt. And then he came back, heard that the king's son was reigning in the stead of the old Herod that had killed all the babies. And so Joseph was afraid to go back to where he'd been born. And so he went to Nazareth. How did the infant Jesus say, Dad, you know, I think the really thing that would be really hot is if we went and lived in Nazareth, because then that prophecy about me could come true, that, that I was going to be called out of Egypt and that I should be called a Nazarene. There's no way that Jesus before his birth could arrange all of that stuff and that Mary and Joseph would be coming down those lines that the Old Testament talked about and he happened to be born of a woman who was rumored to be a virgin. Though not too many believed that. And then, of course, you go through the whole thing and how did he arrange for Judas to betray him for 30 pieces of silver because the Old Testament talks about that. Do you think he and Judas got together and he said, Judas, I know you're going to betray me. You need to take 30 pieces of silver along because it's very important. And how did he arrange for Judas to use the money to buy a potter's field because that's what the Old Testament said he'd do with the money? How did that figure How did Jesus arrange for the false witnesses? How did Jesus arrange to be smitten and spat upon and crucified? How did he arrange for the soldiers to pierce his hands and feet and not break his legs? They always broke their legs to make sure they were dead. And they took the two thieves and broke their legs, but they didn't break Jesus' legs, remember? Why? said in the Bible they wouldn't break his legs. And it says in the Bible in Isaiah that we would look on him who they pierced. They took a spear instead and put it into his heart. They didn't do that to the other two because the Bible said that's what would happen. Read Psalm 22. How did we know that he would pray for his enemies? Well, he might have figured, you know, I'm supposed to be the Messiah, so I'm going to have to pray for my enemies. How did Jesus say to the centurions, you know, guys, would you just come around this cross and start and have a little game and gamble for my garments because that's what the Bible says. If I'm the Messiah, it's going to happen and I really need you to help me with this. Now, if you believe all of that, it takes more faith to believe that stuff. 
than it does to believe that he was indeed the Son of God. I know when I looked at the evidence of prophecy, I began to realize that that baby in the manger was God in Christ incarnate. See within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. God, my creator, my savior. That changes your life forever. By the way, how did they arrange for the star to stop just over the right place at the right time? Who the baby in the manger with the starlight in his eyes? This the God of all the ages who my hungry heart surprised. Hear the angels singing love songs, standing guard in awful rank. Who the baby in the manger I forgot to stop and thank for the price it took to love me back from sin and soul dismay. For a life of joyful service in a world that's gone astray. Who this baby in the manger in this cheap and tawdry place. This my Jesus, this my Savior, who came down in time and space. This is Jesus leaving everything that we might have no lack. While a stunned and mourning heaven waits to get its treasure back. Could this baby in the manger be the God of world renown? Could it be that that first Christmas God in Christ had come to town? How can we who need forgiveness pass the cave in disbelief? Go about our daily business while he offers us relief. How can we in blind indifference party on on Christmas Day while we celebrate the little one who gave his life away? Men and women with such heartache looking everywhere but here while Emmanuel lies quietly and God in Christ draws near. See me kneeling at the manger. Hear me telling him my pain. Hear my prayer for hope and meaning. Let me live and love again. Cleanse the dirt inside my spirit. Heal the scars of sin and shame. Make me over, precious Savior. That's the reason that you came. Here I kneel just like the shepherds who came to gaze that day. Teach me to be a shepherd girl and live my life away. I believe. Do you? I believe. I believe. The baby in the manger is God. Is God. And if that is true, and I believe it is, then what he said about heaven, how to get there, how to be forgiven, how to know peace and joy, that's all true too. I am the truth. So Victoria... Who's the baby in the manger? You, Victoria, tonight? They gave up long-held beliefs. They gave in to incontrovertible evidence that this child was indeed the one that the Jewish nation had been told about from the beginning of time. Starting in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. That's what happened on the cross. And they ended up giving out the good news. The shepherds went everywhere telling their story. When they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them. He was no ordinary child. He was the Christ, the promised redeemer. Monday mornings were different from then on for the shepherds. Same old sheep, same old hills, same old reputation for the shepherds were on the bottom of the food chain in that society. They were the thieves. They were not to be trusted. You shut and bolted your door in case a shepherd came down to plunder 
and to steal and worse. And here was a whole city listening to a bunch of shepherds who were praising and glorifying God. And not only were they listening, they were believing. Because such a transformation had come over them. I remember my mother-in-law giving me the hymn that she found the day after she was converted. Heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green. Something gleams in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with sweeter songs all flow. Something earthborn beauty shines. Since I know as now, I know I am his and he is mine. And that's what it's like. You go out into the day after you've knelt at the manger and said, I need you as my savior, forgive my sin. And he by his spirit enters into your heart and earth around is sweeter green and the heaven is deeper blue and something gleams in every hue Christless eyes have never seen and you just see the world in a new light. And that's what happened to the shepherds. And they rushed around saying, don't be afraid, that's what the angel said, peace, Good news, that was nice, in a world full of bad news. Hope, meaning, great joy, happiness, global impact, all people, inclusive, not exclusive. Today a Savior is born who is Christ, Christ the Lord. And they accepted the gospel and they articulated the gospel and they adorned the gospel. Good old English word from the King James Bible. Paul talks about it. He's talking to slaves and he says, adorn the gospel, dress the gospel. The gospel should dress our lives. Be different as shepherds, be different as slaves. Make people watch your behavior and put them on inquiry. May there be something about you. There was all this glory, all this praise, all this shiningness about these ordinary bottom of the food chain shepherds and people. Do you know what it says in Titus 2? Slave, says Paul. Let your good character shine through your actions, adding luster to the teachings of our Savior God. Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. They were like a magnet. There was something about them. I remember going out in the streets in our street days. We worked with a youth mission and worked with young people in the streets of Europe for 13 years. And I remember taking a team of young Christians out with me. And some of the young kids, we were drug addicts that we were dealing with. And the kids that were just roaming around the streets, one of them said to me, What you guys on? Meaning, what drugs were we taking? And I said, we're not on any drugs. Yes, you are. Look at you. Look at you. All your eyes. Look at all your eyes. And I remember him bunching up two or three of the kids and standing them there in front of them. And sort of the kids with big eyes, they didn't know what was going to happen. And, and he says, look at you. Look at you. They're all shining. You're on something. What drug are you taking? And I said, believe it or not, <laughs> that's the Holy Spirit shining through. What's that? Who's he? Never heard of him. Let me tell you about him. They're not on any drugs. They were attractive. They were shining. There was something about them. It was a Christness, a Godness about him. I was converted in my second semester at Cambridge. I went home for my first Christmas. I was dreading it. I have a wonderful family. I love Christmas at home. Chestnuts, roasting, Bing Crosby, 
Dad was a wonderful musician, couldn't read a word of music, but he would play little organ, he would play four or five instruments just by ear. And they'd have a big party, and all our wonderful friends, my mum and dad had marvelous friends, as good as you can get without God. That's my background. And they would all come, and we would party and party till three in the morning, and it was a happy time. But now suddenly, I was not looking forward to my first first Christmas as a Christian at home. And I was thinking, I don't know if I can do this. I'm going to have to find a church. And never been to church in my life. And I remember going home and watching all the things, getting ready and thinking, what's wrong with me? I am just dreading this party. And so I looked in the paper and I found a church service, which was unusual in those days, a midnight mass, you might say, or a midnight church service. And I didn't have a car. We used public transport in those days. And I reckoned it would take me an hour to walk there and to walk back. Anyway, I just said to my mom, I'm going out at 11 o'clock and I'll be back about one o'clock. And she didn't even ask me where I was going. And so the party was just getting going. And I went and I walked and I walked through the streets of Liverpool until I found this little church full of people full of light, talking about Jesus. And I couldn't stand the thought it was going to stop. And I sang carols for the first time in my life that made sense. Absolutely, absolutely made sense. I was singing these words thinking, oh yes, of course. (laughs) Of course, I understand. And then it was over, and I was the last left. And in the end, the janitor said, you'll have to go, miss. We've got to shut up the place. And I said, all right. And I walked back. And I walked in, and the party was in fine going. And I just slipped in and stood against the door. And my aunt saw me. And she said in quite a loud voice, oh, where have you been? We missed you. And everybody stopped. And they all turned around and looked at me. And my sister said, she's been to church. And there was dead silence. And another guest said, yes, I can see that. Look at her face. I had no idea what they were talking about. But I think, by God's grace, I was adorning the gospel. Do people say that about you? Will they this Christmas? Will they? Shepherds had an unprecedented opportunity. The town was full of relatives. (laughs) So will ours be. Preached a sermon once that Christmas is coming and so are the relatives. Look out. (laughs) It's not always wonderful when the relatives come, is it? I understand. And yet, what an opportunity to share with those that are closest to us. Family, like the shepherds share praising and glorifying God and demanding questions. What's happened to you? I've never seen you like this. I've never seen you take your job seriously before. I've just never seen such a change in someone. And look at your face. I tell you something. When you believe that baby in the manger is God, People will beat a path to your life to find out why. Yes, they will. 
So I'm looking forward to Christmas this year. And I hope you are too. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I believe the baby in the manger was God. In Christ come to earth for me and for everyone else, for all people. Salvation for all people in all religions. And Lord, however narrow, however naive it sounds, I believe, I believe, I believe. And because I believe, dear Father, I ask that I might be a shepherd girl this Christmas and live my life away and explain the gospel, articulate it, adorn it, that those I love most and those who come to town may hear about a baby in a manger and may meet him there. I ask it for your sake, dear Jesus, and I want to thank you publicly that though you were rich, yet for my sake you became poor, that I, through your poverty, might become rich beyond measure, beyond my wildest dreams. Thank you. Thank you for Christmas. Amen.